All right, so open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. That's where we'll be spending our time this morning. So let me say straight away that, um, well, I've entitled this sermon, The Obstacle of Arrogance, uh, part one. So uh, we're not going to get all of chapter four in today. We're going to do that in two pieces. Um, And uh, so we're going to focus in on that first part of chapter four, just those first seven verses. That's where we'll spend our time this morning. Um, Let me say also at the front end, um, I'm so grateful that God calls us to preach his word and not anyone else's word Um, because it requires us to tackle whatever's next in the book. He is the one that wrote this. And so um, if I were to teach you about how um, how you ought to respond to pastors and come up with my own message on that, that would be a pretty uncomfortable thing. But as it is, God tells us how to do it. And that's, what, that's the topic today, and that's what's next. And we're going to be faithful to the Word and let it call us um, to action. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 4, um, we'll do 1 through 21, but we're going to do it in two pieces. Um, the obstacle of arrogance. And as I was thinking about how to introduce this sermon with this topic, um, it will not surprise you to know they have many, many things in my own personal file that I can use as an illustration about the obstacle of arrogance. When I was a young adult, when I was 18, it was, I mean, I don't want to limit it to just that year, okay, but I'm remembering when I was 18, okay? When I was this young adult, I was, on, I was in that transition period of graduating from high school and about to go off to college. Um, and during that year in particular, I have very vivid memories of conversations I had with my parents during that year, and uh, I was pretty full of myself. I'm just here to tell you. I thought I was pretty well equipped for whatever was going to come down, and I really didn't need much in the way of advice from anyone. I was just a very arrogant young man. My parents in contrast to that, are very wise and generous people. They have always offered me sound advice, and they have tried, like most good parents, to help me by sharing lessons that they had learned through hardships and life experiences, just being on this planet for longer than me, right? But I often thought too highly of myself to listen to them. Again and again, I can think of of times. I can recall how I shamefully would wave them off and go, yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know. Maybe you've heard those words. I was arrogant, and it was frequently an obstacle to, to benefiting from what they were handing me, the advice, the counsel they were, they were, they were giving me. And it was frequently, um, you know, really helpful, beautiful things they were trying to trying to to put in my hand, and I would wave them off. And had they wanted to, my parents had so many opportunities to say, I told you so. 
Maybe you can relate as a parent. Maybe, maybe you can step into my mom and dad's shoes in this little ex- experience that I'm sharing. Or maybe you remember being that kind of arrogant, uh, you, you know, yourself towards your parents. Or maybe you're still that way. If so, this was a really great day to be under God's word. By God's grace, let us listen to it this morning and heed the warning of the obstacle of arrogance. Now, in chapter 3, just for context, Paul urged the Corinthian Christians to enjoy all of God's blessings. Remember? Enjoy everything God gives you, which includes, not parents in that chapter, but spiritual leaders. Spiritual leaders that God had given the Corinthians. The Corinthians had been living as spiritual infants, you remember? Failing to see with spiritual eyes. I mean, that's the whole book, right? The call to be spiritual. That's the, that's the title of this whole sermon series. For the Corinthians had failed to, to see with these spiritual eyes, failed to be the, the blossom into the spiritual people that God wanted them to. And Paul had rebuked the Corinthians for failing to embrace the mature and abundant life he had purchased for them in Christ, which comes in large part through church leaders. They had been put pitting one spiritual leader against another, causing factions and a spirit of competition within the church. The root of their immaturity and their divisiveness had been their arrogance. This chapter makes that very plain. For arrogance walks hand in hand with not seeing yourself and others clearly in Christ's church. And it is the topic of arrogance that Paul now turns, specifically the Corinthians' arrogance in relation to the pastors, the leaders that God had provided for them. As we turn to chapter 4 today, we'll see the apostle issuing two warnings. We're only going to get to the first one today. Two warnings to the Corinthians who arrogantly saw themselves in exalted positions that they were never meant to be in. So let's look at the text, and uh, I think we'll just read those first seven verses for now. This is God's Word, friends. Pay careful attention. He's doing things in the hearts of His people when when uh, when we look at it, so let's look closely. God's Word reads like this. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? This is one of those serious topics, and you've got to dial in. It's really important. 
it's, it's not a theme that we see developed with this, um, with this detail, with this, with this uh, reasoned logic in, in other passages that deal uh, with similar topics. The theme that I hope you'll see from this passage is this, arrogance keeps the church from benefiting from the shepherds God provides. Arrogance keeps the church from benefiting from the shepherds God provides. Pride is an obstacle that stands between Christians and spiritual maturity. That's just a general truth, right? Pride keeps you from being the Christian you were called to be. Pride keeps you from growing in the faith. Pride keeps you from seeing your need of God on a daily basis. Pride keeps you from benefiting from other church members. Pride keeps you from praying. Pride keeps you from, you know, like I did with my parents, saying to the Word of God, like, yeah, 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 I know it already. Pride gets in the way. It stands between Christians and spiritual maturity. It hinders you from following the Savior and being made, being remade, as it were, into his image. And so the Spirit of Christ, through Paul, issues a warning here. Actually, two of them. As I said, we're only going to get to one today. This, this, this warning that has to do with pride getting in the way. Think of the two warnings that we'll hear together this week and when we get back to it. Think of them as two trees that have fallen and blocked your way. Does anybody remember that big storm? There was a huge tree branch that, that fell uh, from the golf course, I think, maybe, uh, onto the road here, and there was no getting past it, right? Think of that, the, these, these two warnings about your pride as trees that have fallen in your way to get to spiritual maturity, but but don't think of it just simply as happenstance. Think of these trees as ones that we ourselves cut down and they fall the wrong way. We're the culprit. We're the one that made the tree fall in our own way. And so these are obstacles we need to remove. Paul warns the church to get rid of them. His first warning is that in our arrogance, we can think of ourselves as judges. That's the first warning. That's the first thing he points out. In our pride, we can think of ourselves as judges. And secondly, what we'll get to next time, is that we can, in our arrogance, think of ourselves as kings. Judges who are meant to be our pastor's critics, in particular, and kings who look down on the lives of our pastors that are given to us. Paul warns against both obstacles the Corinthians in their arrogance had put in the way. The, these obstacles that they had, the trees that they had caused to fall in their own path that kept them from benefiting from the leaders God had given them. And so again, the theme of our text is that arrogance, friends, arrogance keeps the church from benefiting from the shepherds God provides. So let's look at this first warning. This is where we'll spend our time this morning. First warning Paul issues to the Corinthians about their leaders. You are not their judges. That's the first warning. Look at verse 5 just to refresh your memory here. Do not pronounce judgment before the time. Very plain there, right? 
and we have to give it some context, but there, it's a very clear directive. Don't, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Okay. Let's deal with a potential objection, first of all, right? You may have been listening to this text read and ask yourself, does this really apply to local pastors? I mean, Paul was not a local pastor in the way that Jeff is today. Right? So that may have been bouncing around your mind. Maybe not, but, but I want to deal with that objection if it gets in the way of us understanding this text. I mean, it seems that Paul was dealing with what people were thinking about apostles. So let me make the connection so you can see how this text is to be applied to how Christians ought to view their local pastors today in their churches. The Corinthians had been bringing discord and division to their church over which leader was best, right? You remember that from what we've already covered. They were, they were arguing over who is the most impressive speaker. They, they were bringing division over uh, which one should be valued and followed to the exclusion of the rest. Remember they had been saying, I follow Paul, or I follow Cephas, meaning Peter, and they were apostles, right? But some had also said that they were following Apollos, remember. And you can see this in chapter 1 and verse 12 and chapter 3 and verse 4. Both, both times they reference this, I follow this particular person kind of language. So the warning against being the judge of a church leader clearly isn't restricted to apostles because Apollos is in the mix, right? The other thing to see is that this worldly infighting that had been happening happened in the context of a local church, the church that was in the city of Corinth. In other words, this is not a general epistle. This is not like the, the book of Hebrews. This is a letter that was sent to you know our, our post office box out here, our, our mailbox. Oh, this is open to, we're Corinth. This is our church. This has been happening in a local church. The most natural application of this this passage today, then, is to think in terms of how this warning could be followed or disregarded in a local church like Union Lake. Well, we don't have apostles today, so what kind of church leaders would we apply this to? Well, we'd apply it to the pastors of the local church. That said, you could also think of this passage in terms of how to view other Christian leaders that we benefit from, those who have wider ministries. I think it's a secondary application, but you might also think in terms like, you know, maybe Carolyn likes John MacArthur a lot, and maybe Larry likes John Piper a lot, and, and maybe, you know, somebody else likes some other well-known, you know, Alsterbeg or somebody like that. And, and there could be a way, right, of fighting in the church over, you know, I'm, I'm the smarter one, I've picked the right horse to ride or whatever. You follow what I'm saying? That could be a secondary application. I don't think it's the primary one, though. I think the most natural extension of apostles and other early leaders in local churches are the pastors or elders who lead local churches today. And so, the warning rings out to us against self-righteously trying to sit as your pastor's judge. And I'm aware of the potential awkwardness of me teaching on this. And that's why I say I just rejoice this is God's word. Let's lean in, right? Let's not be ashamed of, of what God wants to teach us today. Finally, Paul calls himself and Peter and Apollos in this text stewards, do you see it there in the first verse? Stewards of the mystery of the gospel. 
And he would later use that same word to describe elders in his letter to Titus. So Titus chapter 1, verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward, same word, he goes on in verse 9 to say, they must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Do you see the point I'm trying to make here? Paul called himself and Peter and, and Apollos, he called them stewards of the mysteries of God. And in Titus, Paul writes this letter to Titus that says, install elders in all the churches on Crete there. Uh, they, they are stewards, and they, what are they stewards of? The word of God, the doctrine, the mysteries of the gospel. You see the connection there? So even in the language, it, it foretells that this will be applied to local pastors. And so I think we can safely, we're on safe ground then to move forward thinking about applying this text to how we think of our pastors. Okay, the warning is not simply for the people who lived in Corinth then a long time ago, not to try and serve as judge of apostles who ministered to them, but it's also a warning for Christians everywhere today, not just in our church, in every church, not to be overly critical of the pastors of their local church. Now we're going to break this down. There's lots more to be said about this from this very text, but that's the initial starting point. <clears throat> Let me say what this passage does not say. It doesn't say that Christians ought not to care whether their pastors are in sin. It does not say that. 1 Timothy chapter 5 gives very specific instructions on what to do in such cases. The warning here is not against being wise and discerning. It's not just like shut your brain off and you know, let your pastors do anything they would want to do. That's not what it's saying. This passage also doesn't say that you ought not to encourage your pastor or make helpful suggestions or offer constructive criticism or even wise counsel. It doesn't say that either. You ought to do those things. No, the warning here is against self-righteously seeing yourself as their judge, as the one that's going to sort of render a verdict on every decision. That kind of thing. Notice how Paul defines the kind of judging he's warning against in the very passage. Look at verse 6 in the second half. None of you are to be what? Puffed up in favor of one against another. That's what he's warning about. Don't be pompous. Don't be full of yourself. Don't pump yourself up as if you're the one that's now going to ultimately judge which leader is the best kind of leader and everybody else should sort of follow you and your, your, uh, your, your judgment or something like that. Paul's warning the Corinthians against puffing themselves up, thinking too highly of themselves, seeing themselves as the arbiter of a pastor's effectiveness. And we can all do this, can't we? I mean, be honest, friends. This is the place to be honest, right here. Worshiping God and having his word shine the, the, the Holy Spirit's light on you, right? We can all do this. We are inveterate evaluators and judges of other people. We can't shut it off, it seems. We're constantly assessing ourselves too highly and others too harshly. It's the default position. And when we do this, though, when we do this to those God gave us as spiritual leaders, we deny ourselves the benefit that they provide. 
We, we, it's like we bring a wrecking ball to God's plan for our own good, right? I mean, when we try to subject our pastors to our preferences and our opinions, we rob ourselves of a God-ordained means of growing into the mature people of God we were meant to, to grow into. I mean, be reminded of Hebrews 13, 17. This, this, this is a verse that has so much um, uh, uh, gospel logic to it uh, on this very point that, I'm, that, I, that I've been speaking on. It reads like this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls for your benefit. You see what the, the writer of Hebrews is trying to say there? As those who will have to give an account, which we're going to talk about in a minute from our text, <coughs> let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You see the gospel logic of it? God has given you church leaders for your good. Don't try to bring it, don't crash into it with your car. Don't try to dismantle it, right? That's the point. That would be of no advantage to you. Arrogance keeps the church from benefiting from the shepherds God provides. The first way this happens is when the saints exalt themselves to be their pastor's judges. This is what we've been talking about. This is the warning. Now, the main reason for we should be beware of such tendencies in ourselves is that pastors are not the church's servants. I'm going to have to break that down, what I mean by that. Pastors are not the church's servants. Look at how our passage begins. Look at verse 1 there. This is how one should regard us uh, we, church leaders, me and Peter and Apollos, right? This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ. Do you see it there? As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. It's, my point is not that pastors don't serve the church. They're not called to serve the church. That's not my point. But pastors do not serve the church because they are subordinate to other Christians in the church. Pastors serve the church because they have been appointed by Christ as his servants. They have been tasked by him and under his authority and under his oversight to lead the church, guard biblical truth for the church, protect the church against false teachers and those sinfully hurting them, shepherding the souls of the people in his church and training them up for service on his mission. You get the point that this is the tone of this text. How should you think about church leaders? You should think about them as servants of, not you, but of Christ. Now that, mean, that doesn't mean you're out of the mix, right? You understand? But they are ultimately servants of Christ. The church is not to be the judge of his pastors, therefore. God is their judge. Peter describes pastors or elders as shepherds who oversee God's flock until Christ the chief shepherd returns. That's like 1 Peter chapter 5, I believe. God has called pastors to serve in this way and are entrusted with the mysteries of his gospel, the truths of the faith, and with the church members under his care. So pastors are not underlings in the church. Um, I remember a very difficult time in our last church many, many years ago, and uh, there was a lot of ugliness, and it was in this very, this very idea. 
And I remember one church member in the face of one of the pastors wagging his finger saying, just remember one thing, you work for us. I remember it like it was yesterday. And maybe we all have to battle that demon. Maybe we all have to battle that sinful way of thinking about really all relationships, not just the pastor-church member relationship, but we probably fight with that in any situation where God's placed somebody over us, a boss, a husband, a parent, a government official, right? There's lots of different, you know, those relationships where God places somebody over you in authority or something like that, and it's something we're constantly battling. But if we remember that pastors are, are Christ's servants, his under-shepherds, that he has said, essentially, care for my church until I return. Guard my gospel until I get back. If you think about it in those terms, I think it really helps us. Helps us to see pastors as resources for our blessing that God has given us instead of like, you know, subordinates or something like that. Because of this, because of this reality, because of seeing pastors as servants of Christ, they're not simply to be seen as employees, to be scrutinized. They're not to be subjected to undue criticism and a spirit of nitpicking and fault-finding. No doubt this can happen because someone might think, if I don't evaluate his decisions and preferences and teaching style and personality and talent, who will? Right? Sometimes we think that. If I don't judge him, who's gonna? And that's just the point. There is someone who will judge pastors and how they fulfill their responsibilities. And that someone's God. Pastors are answerable to him because their assignment originates with him. And so pastors will be judged by God for how they serve and how they protect and teach and live out the gospel. It'll all come out in the light of his perfect judgment. Look at verse 4 there, the second half. It is the Lord who judges me. And then, and then look at uh, into verse 5 there. He will, he will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. God does that. He will do that. He will make all things plain. Right? God's coming judgment of his servants should be a great relief to you, friends. While we all are imperfect, prideful, hypocritical judges, he is not. The purifying fire of his judgment brings absolute clarity. It is he who will determine if pastors are found trustworthy, verse 2. And to what extent they will receive their commendation, second half of verse 5. Because of this, you don't need to judge the heart intentions of those God sets over you. We get in trouble when we do. I know why Linda said that. She was thinking this. We all do that. It's always wrong to do that. God judges intentions. We don't do that because we don't have the stuff. We don't have that perfect clarity. We, we're unable to read people's hearts. And when we try, we almost always get it wrong. But God never gets it wrong. And that should, that should, that should bring relief to us. That should help us in this. 
That kind of judgment is God's work. And nothing in the end, nothing, friends, nothing in the end, not any decision, not any heart inclination, nothing will be hidden in the end. So free yourself from the role you aren't equipped for. Trust him to judge your spiritual leaders. And and in the meantime, enjoy what you get from your pastors, right? Enjoy the the blessings that that your spiritual leaders bring to you. They are all yours. You you remember from chapter 3? Look again, be reminded. Verse 21, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world and on and on, right? So don't if, when you set yourself up as a judge of your spiritual leaders, essentially what you do is you take them out of the mix for your blessing now. Well, I'm not going to listen to Dan because I hate the way he does this when he preaches. Or I'm not going to listen to Joel because I don't like the way he, you know, songs he picks or, or, or what he says to introduce songs or when he's teaching Sunday school. I don't, I'm not going to listen. You can do that. And all of a sudden, those guys are not, no longer a resource to you because you've shut the door. You follow me? Arrogance keeps the church from benefiting from the shepherds God provides. And so we, gotta, we have to be careful. We, we want to enjoy what God provides. This is part of Christ's plan to bless you and grow you until he returns. Now the reality of being accountable to God should also bring freedom to pastors. Freedom from obsessing about what others might think of them. And that is a huge draw, right? Our little wicked hearts are always saying, well, if you do this, you know, Becky will like it. If you do this other thing, you know, Margie's not going to like it. You know, our hearts are always doing that, right? But the reality of knowing that pastors are accountable to God ultimately, right? That's really, that frees us from that, from that enslavement to try to be people pleasers, By God's grace, Paul was able to live in that freedom, at least in Corinth. Look at what he said there in verse, um, is that verse 3? With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. It's a very small thing to me. Very small thing. Friends, you don't want your pastors to walk on eggshells around you. You don't want your pastors to second guess you know, things they have to decide because, oh, you know, Tim might not be a fan of that or something like that. You don't want them to be people pleasers. You want them to be God pleasers. And I know that sounds pious, but it's just true. You, you want to encourage us to please the Lord. Pray for us to see him as the one we serve as we lead you and pastor you in the faith. Pray that we'll always keep that in focus, that we have an audience of one. There's only one judge, and we want to please him. We want, to, we want our commendations to come not from you necessarily, though that's encouraging. We want to place our hope in a commendation that comes from God. What we want to hear ultimately is, well done, good and faithful servant. Pray for us to have that mindset. But you know what derails that? If you're overly critical of us, if you're always browbeating us about every decision, that kind of thing. Now, I'm not saying you do that, but we need to be, we need to be on guard against that sort of thing. Pray that we wouldn't exchange the reward of the Savior for the cheap applause of those we would pander to. That's the idea. 
can I say this idea of it's a very small thing to me to be judged by someone else. That's a truth. That's eternal truth there we just read. Can I tell you that that verse saved me last year? It saved me last year. I was subjected to a lot of criticism, and so was Dan and Joel. But this verse in particular saved me. Saved me from a lot of mistakes. Saved me from a lot of, of, of heart-wrenching time that, I, that God spared me from. We serve an audience of one, and God is that one. So long as your pastors strive to be obedient to the master and to do what he calls us to do, it's a very small thing for someone to come later and try to condemn you. It's not possible to live in this freedom without his grace, and that's why I said pray for us. Pray that God would be gracious to us in this regard. But by his grace, it is true freedom for serving him and leading his people. And I would submit to you, that you can claim that for yourself also. Because God calls you to serve. God, God has given you responsibilities in, in, in this mission, right? And so strive to please him. Don't be people pleasers. Pray that God would so motivate your heart that you want his commendation and no one else's. It will just spare you from a lot of grief and a lot of wasted time, a lot of wood, hay, and stubble kind of building that in the end will have no eternal value. Okay, here's another thing, though. Pastors aren't to see themselves in God's place as judge either. They, sh they should certainly evaluate themselves, right? I mean, I should evaluate myself. I, 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 should, I should consider my weaknesses. I should, I should get counsel from other people. I should repent of my failures. I should work hard to develop my gifts. I should strive to improve and be a better man and a better pastor. In a word, pastors should judge themselves, but only to a point. Verse 4 tells us that Paul did this, but he's quick to say that he also isn't his ultimate judge. Right? I'm not acquitted by this fact. I don't know anything. You know, I don't even judge myself. I mean, I don't know anything against me, myself. I haven't done anything wrong that I'm aware of. But that reality does not acquit him. That's not enough. He's not the ultimate judge. That's why he follows that up in the second half of verse 4 by saying, it is the Lord who judges me. And so pastors cannot simply see their own judgment as sufficient, right? Just as you ought not to be overly critical of me, I can't then just say, well, I'm the one that's going to judge. You see? Because none of us are equipped in that way. None of us can supplant God in that role. Pastors cannot get themselves off the hook by simply declaring themselves to be faithful. No, they must always strive to serve in the fear of the Lord, who they will render an account to on the last day. That Hebrews verse is a frightening verse for pastors. They are those who will give an account. And that motivates pastors to fear the Lord, try to please Him, serve well. It's God's gift to us, really. 
Well, the final reason we ought to remember we are not the judge of those who lead us is that to do so comes from a sinful superiority. Now we're getting right into the kind of the middle of the bullseye of arrogance here. Whether we are to judge and the manner in which we are to judge in those cases that we are, those things are not up to us. In other words, we don't, it's not in our right to simply seize something and say, I'll be the judge of that, right? That's not, that's not our prerogative, right? Um, it's the Lord's prerogative. He's the one that tells us what to judge and how to judge. And spiritual leaders are to model this kind of maturity, this, this, this kind of humility, this kind of obedient waiting on the Lord. Paul says that he and Apollos had done that very thing in verse 6. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Now I will say, this might be the most difficult verse in the book to interpret. There's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of arguing in commentators uh, at this point. We don't know exactly what scripture Paul's referring to when he says, don't go beyond what is written. Normally he would reference it there or quote something, and, and he doesn't. But we do know that it has to do with arrogantly judging others when we have been prohibited from doing so. We know that's the category he's talking about. The point is that Paul and Apollos had led by example on this point. They had not exhibited a spirit of competition among themselves and, and sort of hypocritically judging each other, right? They had not judged each other or perhaps other leaders with an inflated sense of how to lead or preach or rule over God's people. They ought to do it like I do it, right? They, they led by example and they didn't do that sort of hypocritical, self-righteous kind of judging, but the Corinthians had not followed their example. They had misbehaved, um, as verse 7 tells us. They had behaved as if they were different. They were superior than their fellow church members. They puffed themselves up as if everything they were and all of the blessings, including church leaders, they had had not been, they had not been given, they had, that, those things had not been given to them by God. That acted like, you know, they found these things, that they had discovered, they had built these things, that there was something different about them, that's why they could judge. That's this air of superiority I've been talking about. So this is a rebuke to be sure here, but it's a reasoned one. Paul was urging them to see their arrogance, and we need to see our arrogance too. We've always got to be examining ourselves and looking for that awful root of, of pride that always seems to, it's like you know, Nathan was talking about commonly pulling weeds out of his new front lawn, right? That's what pride is. It's always growing up in us, and we've got to always be looking for it. And Paul helps them by reasoning with them about how the wrongness of their arrogance here. He asks them rhetorical questions that they might see that no one has given them authority to judge in this way that they've been doing. In fact, they didn't have anything except at the gracious hand of God. Here's another thing. Let 
when we judge in this way, if we don't abandon this kind of superiority, you know, superior way of thinking about ourselves, that we ought to be judging other people in this way. We seize for ourselves something that's not ours. We keep ourselves from all that God has given us when we do, I've mentioned that, but we do something else. We communicate to other people, to our children, to our neighbors, that we don't believe God will judge ultimately. So we better do it. In other words, we undercut the very gospel that we are saying we're trying to guard by judging people. We're undoing ourselves in our mission. Remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just what he has done in the past, friends, but it includes what he will yet do at his return. And we need to live as people who believe that. You know, the ladies um, in the Bible study this year were in the book of Acts, And uh, I want to remind you of something in Acts 17 on this very point. In Athens, Paul testified of God being the one who made the world and all who dwell in it. And he testified that God had made all the nations of mankind and had you know, sort of populated them and determined where they would live and that all are called to repent of their sins for they would be judged in the end. And this is what he said in Acts 17, verse 31. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There is a judge coming, friends, and you are not him. And this is why we have to patiently wait on, the, on, on that day. We have to wait for that last day. We can't judge before the time. You know when you can judge your pastors, when you can, when you can scrutinize their every decision? You can do that right after Jesus does because he'll show you in clarity, and then you can agree with him, right? But when you say, I'm going to be the judge, you communicate to other people that you do not believe that Jesus is going to come and judge the world. And that is, a, that is an essential part of the gospel. That's why Paul shared it with the men in Athens and said, you're going to be judged. You need to turn from your sins. Repent. Jesus is coming. He was raised from the dead. That was God's surefire way of saying, that's the guy. He's coming back. Right? So we've got to be careful here. We're warned by Paul against trying to do what Christ will do, be the ultimate judge of those he appoints to lead his people. Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, verse 5 says. Until that time, until he comes, Hold back your judgments about whether one man is a good leader because he meets some standard of yours. Don't boast in men and don't boast in your own opinion. Simply enjoy the blessings of God to you in whatever capacities your leaders have. Soak them up for your benefit, for your growth, for your maturity, but let God be their judge, ultimately. Don't be like the 18-year-old Jeff. who always thought he knew better than to receive the blessings from my mom and dad, who are wiser than me. Trust God. He's wiser than you. Trust God and enjoy the leaders he has given you, as flawed as we are, but let him be their judge. 
Arrogance keeps the church from benefiting from the shepherds God provides. So be warned. You're not your pastor's judges. And you don't want us to think that you are. Turn from that kind of arrogance to the extent that you have seen that in yourself. Turn from that kind of arrogance so you won't be hindered from benefiting from the ministry your pastors have for you by God's grace. Take a few minutes of quiet reflection, friends, over that word. I I trust it was a good one.